Now, the Frank Sinatra song, uh, My Way, answers a question everyone is asking in life, isn't it? What is life? And how do we live it? And uh, it's the most popular song played at funerals. So when we think about how people are answering this question, this is actually how they answer it in their life. Uh, It's very instructive, by the way, when you just think about what people choose to play at their funerals. And as I've attended many funerals, I've realized that really what they choose really summarizes their lives. So when you think about what people in this country think about life, this is the most popular song, My Way. And this is how they see life. How does Frank Sinatra saw life? Well, he says this in the song. He says, and now the end is near. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I am certain. I have lived a life that's full. I have traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. And it goes on to sing, doesn't it? I have laughed, I have laughed and cried. I've had my fill, my share of losing. And now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that. And may I say, not in a shy way, no, oh no, not me. I did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has nothing. To say the things it truly feels, and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. What is Frank Sinatra saying then? He's saying the meaning of life, the meaning of a good life is living for yourself, doing it your way. And on one level, think about that. And on one level, it makes some sense, doesn't it? Because as you listen to the song, Frank says, what has a man got? If not himself, he has nothing. That's true at one level, isn't it? If a man does not have his life, for example, well, he's dead. That's true. And of course, it's also true in another level. All of us have depended on people who have let us down. So we can see why Frank Sinatra reaches that conclusion that all you have in life is yourself, because we've been there. So on one level, the song is, that's why it has resonance. That's why it's played at the funeral. It does summarize people's experiences, and they like it for that. But the problem is that all of us have tried the Frank Sinatra way of life. And we know that living my way, in the end, it destroys us. It destroys society. In fact, imagine everybody in society lived like that. My way or the highway, as they say. I mean, well, you didn't have a society. So we know that's not the way society functions. We need one another. It's, it's not about your way. But we also know that living for yourself really just in the end doesn't fulfill you. Take Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde discovered it, the Irish playwright and poet. In his day, he was a man of unlimited potential. None of us here would equal Oscar Wilde's intellect. His plays were popular and earned him lots of cash. How did he end his life? Well, in the end, he ended it broken, miserable, and in prison. And here is what he wrote while he was in prison. He said this, 
I must say to myself that I have ruined myself. The gods had given me almost everything. But I let myself be led astray into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. I amused myself with being a man of fashion, a dandy. Perversity became my sphere of passion. I grew careless of the lives of others. I forgot that every action makes or unmakes a person. Did you hear that? He says, I forgot that every action makes or unmakes a person. I ceased to be Lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul. I allowed pleasure to dominate me. And then he says this, and I've ended my life in horrible disgrace. <coughs> That's Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, like every rich and famous person, has found that when you get to the top of the pyramid of sin, or the top of the pyramid of life in general, which we're all trying to climb, there is simply nothing there. In the end, living my way is not life at all. It leads to death, death inside. And as the Bible tells us, eternal death. Which, of course, raises an important question, isn't it? For all of us sat here this morning. If living for ourselves is not the point of life, what then is the point of life? How do you answer that? What is the point of your life? Well, if you want to know how something works, what do you do? If you want to know how something works. Well, you read the manual. <laughs> you read the manual, right? You read the manual by the owner. So, if you want to know how your life works, you need to read the manual. Because you did not make yourself. God created you. Right? What is the manual? The manual is the Bible. The word of God. It is God's free manual to help you understand what is my life about and how should I live it. That Bible in your hands. That's what you need to answer this question. And as you open the manual, you'll find the answer to the question. What is the point of life? Well, the answer is actually found in the passage today. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Let me read it. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Bible is saying the point of life is to live for Jesus with thanks to God. You were created by God to honor his eternal son, the Lord Jesus. Right? Now, in ancient times, right, the name of someone spoke of their identity, uh, it spoke of their reputation, it spoke of their authority. And so when we read in the Bible here that the name of the, when we read in the Bible here that do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, we should immediately realize it's not saying go around and say, I do this in the name of Jesus. No, rather, it is talking about 
The name is his reputation, his character, his authority. Just as in the Bible, we often hear the Bible says the name of the Lord is a strong power, right? What does that mean? Well, it means the one true God who has revealed himself um, as Yahweh, who revealed himself as Yahweh to the children of Israel, is our strong tower, is our present protector. It's not just a name. <laughs> it is the person himself. So that's what the name of the Lord Jesus here means. Uh, but notice what he says. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does he mean by in word or deed? Well, this is what we call a spectrum term. It is a way of speaking about to capture everything. We use it actually in everyday speak. So, for example, we might say, I'll be there come rain or what? Or sunshine. What do we mean by that? We are saying that we'll be there no matter what. Right? We'll be there no matter what. Nothing is going to stop us. So when Paul says here, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, Paul is saying to the Colossians and us, everything you think, everything you feel, everything you do must be done to honor Jesus as your Lord. You must do everything in the honor of the majesty and dignity of Jesus. The point of life is that you do not exist for you. You exist to honor Jesus. That's the meaning of your life. Why Jesus? Well, because this Jesus who died and rose again is God our creator. We've met him in chapter 1 of Colossians 1. He created all things. And all things were created through him and for him. That's Colossians 1 verse 16 to 17. And he is a laminin, as we say. He holds everything together. Just as Lamini knows the body, Christ is the one who sustains it all in the universe. All things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. So Jesus is not one among many lords in the universe. Jesus is not one version of the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the supreme governor. Is the very purpose of your life. Jesus created you for himself. And your life will always be empty without living for Jesus. Young or old. If you're not living for Jesus, you are living an empty life. A useless life, as Oscar Wilde described his own life. A horrible life. You see, just as a tire of a car is useless on its own without being fitted into its proper place in the wheel, your life has no meaning without being fitted into Christ. Now, this truth that the point of life is living for Jesus is something I think all of us sense by nature. Whether you believe in Christ or not, you sense what I'm saying is true. You may not admit it, but you sense it is true. Why do I say that? Because all human beings are worshippers. You know, the word worship comes from the word worth. We worship the person or thing to whom or to the thing we, we can attribute the most value, worth-ship. That's worship. Worship, worth, ship. 
And all of us attribute value or worth to things. And sometimes we attribute value or worth to, to things more than other things. There is a desire in all of us to honor something, to give it worth-ship, to value it above all other things, to treasure it. And for many of us, the person we give worth-ship is ourselves. We worship us. God created us to worship him, to give worth to him, but we rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. And so all human beings, since sin entered the world, have turned their backs on God. They live for themselves. Every human being is born as a self-worshipper. Does that frighten you? You worship yourself? Does that fill you with a sense of dread? It should. It should. God will have no rivals. And you know, the way you worship yourself is that you do this by living for your desires and, and, and the things you own. Why do we worship ourselves instead of the Lord God? Why do we do that? Well, because we believe we are the ultimate reality. We believe we do not need to answer to God. You think you are the center of authority in your life. You believe everything in your life must be about me. And when you worship, even if you come to church and you worship, your, you worship God, for many of us, even coming to church is really about worshiping us. Because we, we, we worship God for what God can give us rather than for who he is. So even the act of coming to church on Sunday could be on paper, look like worship, but actually it may even turn out just to be self-worship. Because it may ultimately be about honoring you, about what God can give you. And if God is not giving you something, then of course you even sometimes stop coming to church. We are by nature self-worshippers. But listen to me, worshipping ourselves is a denial of reality. It's a denial of reality. Deep down our hearts, we know we are just mere creatures. Listen, we don't even know ourselves. We don't even know ourselves. I was thinking about this. Think about your brain, right? Think about your brain, right? Do you know you have never seen inside of your own brain? I know you may have seen photos of what looks like a brain, and you go to the hospital, and somebody has to tell you. But you yourself... I've never seen, can never take yourself out and know precisely. You don't know what's in your brain. Literally. How it really looks like. That's just the brain. The stomach is the same. You've never taken a look. How can you take a look? You'll be dead. There's a limit to what you can know. You and I are ignorant people. Very ignorant. Or even ourselves, even our own brain. We are finite people. So with such arrogance, how can we, ignorance I should say, how can we have the arrogance to demand that all of life, everything we do, all of our experiences should be about us? We don't even know us. You see, worshiping ourselves is not just arrogance. It is the height of foolishness. But it's also suicide. Because the Bible says we, we become what we worship. If you live for your desires, in the end, you end up like Oscar Wilde. 
If we keep worshipping ourselves, we simply become our desires. The prophet Isaiah talked about that. We become the things we worship. And what happens is that if we are worshipping our desires, we are ultimately losing our humanity. John Stott says, sin is refusing to be human. And what he meant by that is that by living for ourselves and our desires, we are rejecting who God has created us to be. We are becoming those very things we live for. We are losing our freedom and our happiness in life. But when we live more like Jesus, when we live for Jesus, we become more like what? Like Jesus. And how is Jesus like? Well, we've met him already, haven't we? In Colossians 3, is, uh, Colossians 1, Colossians 2, Colossians 3, but we know that Jesus is full of joy, full of eternal joy, full of peace, full of gentleness, full of kindness. All the things we want in life. And because Jesus is both God and man, the more we live like Jesus, the more human we become. He's the second Adam. He's the only truly human person in existence. To love Jesus is to be the true human being God created you to be. You can only find true happiness by obeying verse 17. By living in a relationship with God our creator and honoring this God, our Lord Jesus, with thanks. We can only be fulfilled by living for Jesus with gratitude. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Young or old, we all want to know why we exist. What is the purpose in life? Everyone needs to know the purpose of life. Because without it, there is no happiness in your life. We need to know our lives matter. And we need to know that not just a part of our lives. I need to know why do my thoughts matter? Why do my feelings matter? Why do my relationship matter? Why does my body matter? I need to know the totality of life. Everything. And you know what? There is no school of thought, no worldview, no religion that gives us a comprehensive view of life that comes anywhere close to what you find in this verse. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Bible is saying, all of your life matters. The good things you've experienced, the suffering you've experienced, all of it has meaning. And this meaning is that all of these things are meant to be for Jesus. The Bible is saying at the heart of the universe is this amazing person. The universe is not impersonal. At the heart of the universe is this person who made it, who created it, the Lord Jesus. This amazing person. And we are here to know this Jesus, to live for this Jesus. He is the true meaning of your life. But listen to me. The Bible is not just saying Jesus is the point of life. It is telling us how to live for Jesus. It is saying our living with Jesus must be heartfelt. True living for Jesus must come from your inner being. You know, many people think it does not matter how I worship God as long as I'm doing it. They think it doesn't matter, you know, what I do for God, how I do for God, how I do things for God as long as I'm doing things for God. 
It's works, 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 works. That's, that's what they think. But God rejects that here. God wants people who not only live for him, but are living for him out of gratitude. True worship of Jesus isn't just worshiping Jesus. True worship of Jesus is you worshiping him as a privilege. That's the worship Christ ex- expects. You are not yet a true Christian unless you've reached that point that Jesus is a privilege. I am so thankful for him. If your worship of Jesus is out of compassion, you're not there yet for Jesus. You're not there yet. Jesus doesn't need your compassion. If your worship of Jesus is out of compassion even, you're not there yet. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't want you to worship him simply because he commands you to worship him. He wants you to worship him because you're like, thank you, Jesus. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, the Lord Jesus. And we can only have this true worship, which has this sense of privilege, by God removing our sinful heart and giving us a new heart. Your normal heart you are born with, your spiritual heart you are born with, is naturally rebellious to God. It's in rebellion against God. It tends to obey God out of compassion. But something else must take place. God must remove that rebellious heart. He must give you a new heart. This is what we call being born again. Or what the theologians call regeneration. He must regenerate you. He must give you a new birth. And with this new heart now, God, of course, forgives your sins, past, present, and future, because Jesus died on that cross for your sins. And it brings you into this permanent relationship of living for Jesus. And now you can worship Jesus. You can live for Jesus, right? Because you're not doing it because Jesus, you're not only doing it because Jesus commands you to do it, because you want to do it. A new principle, as the Puritan called it, is now at work in your heart. A new heart and a new life. How do we have this? Well, we need to repent. We need to surrender our life to Jesus. In fact, before that, we need God's mercy to send the light, to regenerate us first, to really give us that new heart that wants to truly repent, give us a gift of faith. And then, of course, our part, that God does that. Our part is to repent, to truly repent and surrender to Jesus. Now, I want to make it very clear. You've heard that so many times here, we need to repent. But we should be always reminding us of what that means. Sometimes we say repentance is metanoia, change of heart. That's great. Repentance is you're going one direction, you start turning to that direction. That's great. So not just continue living the way you're living. But really, when I think about repentance, there's only one passage in the Bible I go to. And it's Mark 8, verse 34. Because Mark 8, verse 34, is the Lord Jesus himself speaking. Jesus calls the crowd, Mark 8, verse 34, and then he says this. Jesus calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He that is Jesus said to him, If anyone would come after me, do you want to be his disciple this morning? If anyone would come after me, let him, and of course her, deny himself or herself and take up his cross or her cross and follow me. What is a true Christian according to Jesus? Jesus, Who does Jesus expect to be in heaven? His answer is, He who has come after me, who has denied himself, taken up his cross and followed me. What does that mean? 
Well, it means that we must surrender our rights to Jesus. A true Christian has handed over the keys of life to Jesus. He has said to Jesus, you are in charge. Imagine you're a homeowner, right? You own a house. And you run into debt. And your home is what? Repossessed? That happens, right? You run into debt, you're a homeowner. It's repossessed. So what happens is that the bank now has all the rights to your home, right? Well, a true follower of Jesus is like the former owner of the house now living in as a tenant in his repossessed home. He has handed over everything to Jesus. But he has done it not out of compulsion like the way the banks repossessed by force. No, he has done it willingly to Jesus. He has said to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, you own my life now. Take over all my debts. I'm just happy living for you. That's a true Christian. A true Christian is a, that's what Jesus is saying. A true Christian is in a new permanent relationship that starts with that clear heart commitment to deny yourself and give your whole life to Jesus. And you know how Jesus describes it in Mark 8 verse 34? He calls it taking up the cross. That's a horrific image. Because at that time, condemned criminals carried their cross to the place of execution. So imagine Jesus walks in this church and he, he looks at all of us and says, to be my true followers, this is what he was saying, to be my true followers, you must each pick up your electric chair and follow me to your deaths. That's what Jesus means when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, take up his electric chair and follow me to death. In other words, a true follower of Jesus is a person who has signed a death warrant. Jesus is not calling them to a literal death. He's saying you must sign a death warrant on everything you treasure. You must say, it's not mine anymore. It's yours. You must be able to say, I don't want this thing. What I want more, what, the, thing I want, the person I want more than anything else is Jesus. I don't care. We must be like uh, Mephibosheth when he became good, I guess. When you, you may remember the story, sort of, is, 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 there's a bit of disagreement about how Mephibosheth has been behaving. The king, of course, has been booted out of Jerusalem and he's had to go, and Mephibosheth has remained, but eventually David comes back. And when he comes back, he finds Mephibosheth there, and Mephibosheth says, Do you want part of the land or not? Are you interested in splitting that inheritance that is in disagreement? Well, he goes, I don't really care. The king has returned, I'm just happy. I'm just happy to be in your house. I'm happy for you to own everything. I hope you know the story of Mephibosheth and it makes some sense. He was just happy to be there with King David. That's a true follower of Jesus. I want Jesus more than I want my life. And you know, I've emphasized that because this is the opposite of what many people in church believe a true Christian is. You know, in our churches, we speak of accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to say politely, beloved, Jesus does not need your acceptance. Jesus is a Lord of life. And he demands that you submit to him. You surrender to him. Just as the government doesn't need your acceptance of the tax system, it demands you pay your tax. Jesus, the Lord of all life, isn't asking for you to accept him. He's asking for you to surrender to him. That's a true Christian. That's a true Christian. We have heard so much error in churches. 
so much falsehood about what a true Christian is. This is the truth. In the words of Jesus, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me to heaven, if anyone would spend eternity with me, let him deny himself, death to his rights, take up his cross, and follow me. Have you done that? Do, have you understood that's what it means to be a Christian? Can you honestly say, I have repented of my sin. I have taken up my cross. I have signed a death warrant to live for Jesus. Because if you can, there is no heaven for you. Not because I'm saying it, but because Jesus says it, Mark 8, verse 34. I'm not saying we don't grow. There's always growing. But just like in marriage, there's that moment when the wife or the husband must exchange vows and must say, yes, there'll be more growing to be done in marriage, but I'm making a hard commitment to live for this person. And the vow says, do, what do they say? All that I have, the body, we, we, we read it, isn't it? It's good for couples to be reminded of these things. My body, my, everything I own belongs to you. Of course, we forget that once we are married, there's a lot of debate about my own time and my own this, my own that. You know, right? And we have to keep going back to those vows and we have to be reminded and we need people to encourage us. But you get the point. There's always growing to be done. But there's that hard commitment. The same with being a true Christian. You must have that decisive shift. I don't live for me. I live only for Jesus. And that's not a work to be done by you. God must give you that new heart that results in true repentance and surrender to him. What I'm asking here is, do you see evidence of that? Is there a longing in you? To live for Jesus. To obey him. Has God done that for you? Well if he hasn't done that for you. Come and repent now. Ask the Lord to forgive your sins. Truly become a Christian. This Mother's Day. A memorable day. Say I became a true believer. I really understood the gospel. And what it means on that great day. Don't look at the past. Don't look at things you've experienced. Look in the ear now. This is what God demands. I submit to him. And if you submit to him, God will give you a new life of peace and joy in Christ. Repent of your sin. Trust and follow him. Based on the death of Jesus for you. And start living to honor Jesus. Because this is the point of life. The point of life is to live for Jesus with thanks to God. Now, some of us here are already true Christians. Just like the people that Paul wrote this first verse to they are taken up the cross and follow Jesus. We have truly surrendered to the Lord Jesus. We can truly say he's the Lord and Savior of my life. And we already know that the point of living is to live for Jesus. With thanks to God. And yet, like the Colossians, we too are tempted often, aren't we? To live for ourselves rather than living for Jesus. Now, we do not reject Jesus openly if we are true believers. We don't do that. But what we do is this. We compartmentalize, that word I struggle to, 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 to pronounce, we compartmentalize our faith. What I mean by that is that we have a tendency to pick and choose when and where and how our Christian values are expressed. So we think of honoring Jesus if we're doing evangelism. Yeah, 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 we must do it by the book, right? But not when we're having a chat at the school gate with the parent. It's almost like we're not believers there. We are shy about Jesus. Dare they find out I'm a great believer? We don't, we don't want to mention that. 
We think of honoring Jesus when we are choosing who to marry. But we don't think about honoring Jesus when we are writing our CVs. We are not asking ourselves, am I writing this CV in the way that if Jesus was reading it, it would be like honored by that, by its truthfulness, its, its desire to, to honor Christ. This passage is telling us that if you are a true Christian, you cannot slice up your faith like that. You must live every part of your life for Jesus. You cannot say, I live for Jesus on Sunday, but what I do on other days of the week is up to me. You cannot say, I honor Jesus with my money, but not my sex life. You cannot say, I honor Jesus with my prayer life, and, and this is close to home, but not what I eat. Everything must be under the Lordship of Jesus. That's what the Lord has been teaching me. I need to ensure everything's under His Lordship. So more fruit juices and all that. Uh, is a way to honor him, isn't it? All of life must be for Jesus. All human experiences, without exception. There is no event, no activity, no passion, no plan, no dream, no hobby, no belief, no thought, no feeling that is outside the scope of this commandment. The Lord Jesus is the Lord of your life. It is for him. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And you must obey this command with gratitude. Why? Because it's a blessing. This is good for you. It is good for you to obey this command. Let me just give you three quick reasons why it's good for you to obey this command. Just three quick ones. First of all, obeying this command to live for Jesus grows your holiness. If you're a believer, this is how you grow in becoming like Jesus. Imagine how holy your speech last week would have been if you spoke everything with verse 17 in mind. You would have spoken to your family and friends with gentleness, kindness, patience, selflessness, because you're speaking for Jesus. You know, the, 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 the Dutch statesman and um, theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not one square inch in all of the universe over which Jesus does not cry, cry out, mine. Now, imagine how your life would grow to in holiness if you believe that. If you believe that Jesus' cry, mine, includes your thoughts in your head. The decisions you take, the relationships you are cultivating, the books you are reading, the video games you play, the YouTube and TikTok shows you watch, the food you eat, the clothes and cosmetics you buy, the way you parent, the music you listen to. Imagine if you believe for all of those things, Jesus cries out, mine. How would your life look like? You, you grow in holiness. So holiness is the first benefit. Do you want to be holy? As a believer, you want to be holy. Obey verse 17. Second benefit, this brings freedom, doesn't it? Freedom. The Colossians like us were being tempted to live a life based on rules. And there were so many of them. Do not eat, do not touch, do not do this, do not do that. We, we looked at that in chapter 2. And as Christians, we can be... The Christian life sometimes can feel very tiring. Give more. Attend church. Do that. Evangelize. Meet this. Well, I certainly feel like that as a pastor. It can feel like there's a lot of doing. A lot of things I must do. 
But Paul says to the Colossians, a life based on rules can never restrain sinful behavior. If you're living for Jesus, it's all about doing things because you feel you must do them or you just have, you're a rude person. Remember, those things can never restrain sinful behavior. Paul is saying to him, Jesus is so much better. <laughs> living just for Jesus himself is so much better. Because you have freedom to do anything you want as long as that thing truly honors Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. Those are the two tests. Does this honor the holiness, the majesty of God, the majesty of the Lord Jesus as the Lord of the universe? And is this consistent with who I am as a child of God saved from sin? You apply that principle to everything, it's freedom. You move from the realm of rule-keeping to the realm of relationship. That's true religion. You know, people tend to think being a Christian is about following rules. But verse 17 is saying to us, it's about a new living relationship with a person, the Lord Jesus. So, holiness, freedom, here's a third benefit. This makes sense of our suffering, doesn't it? You know, we find it hard to trust Jesus when we're suffering because the world tells us not to trust him. The world says, you are the center of the universe. So you must see all of life from your perspective. The world says, relate to God through your own eyes. And we often give in to the world, don't we? We say to the world, this is what we say to the world. We say, or we say to ourselves, I will only trust God. I will only trust Jesus if I can be convinced of his love or his justice in a way that agrees with me. That's the way we tend to relate to Jesus. If I can be convinced of his love, if I can convince he's in it for me, then I'll agree with him. But sadly, you see, thinking like that brings God to our level. And if you've suffered a lot, I really recognize that. I really want to say that that's something God knows. God understands suffering. We know that. But I also want to say that in our suffering, we shouldn't bring God to our level. We should not try to make God answer for what we see as his alleged crime and misdemeanors, right? Because when we do that, we are, we, 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 are, we, we are defending God. We are making life to be about us. But when we understand that, when I understand that my life was not built for me, I am in this world to live for the glory, honor, and reputation of Jesus, it changes everything. Because I realize that life is not about me, or rather life is only about me to the extent that I relate to him. So what I need to do is I need to see everything not so much from my vantage point, but from his vantage point. I must allow this truth that the point of life and my, even my suffering is to live for Jesus, to fill me with gratitude to God, right? And to fill me with prayer for him to change the way I look at my suffering. Why has God allowed me to go through a terrible financial loss? Why is he allowing me to suffer this illness? Why won't he convert my child right now? 
Wine, wine. Well, life is full of many wines, isn't it? And according to verse 17, the answers to all our whys is that it is for Jesus. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? The Bible's answer, verse 17, yes, human responsibility, we're responsible for our sin, but ultimately, in the grand cosmos, and this is unsettling, because all things work together for the glory of Christ. For our good, yes, ultimately, for his glory. It is for him. The Bible's answer to Job, why, 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 was God to say, why are you asking me? Who are you to ask me? And what we learn from that is that God did not exist for Job. You do not exist. He does not exist for you. All of life is for him. We exist for his glory. Now that is painful. If you're going through suffering right now. Because it feels like we don't matter at all. Only Jesus matters. And in one sense that is true. It is true. We, you are not the point. We've already dealt with that with Oscar Wilde and Frank Sinatra. You are not the point of life. It is. But we, as believers, we can say much more than that as a response to suffering. We can say, remember though who you are to him. Remember who he is to you. He is your redeemer. He is the God who has suffered for you. He is a God who's not distant from suffering. He has bled and died on that cross for you. There is no other God like that. All the claims of man present a God distant from suffering. Our God gets messy. And he says to us on the cross, you are the apple of my eye. Listen, if you are a true Christian, Jesus is not just the Lord. He is your Lord. Your savior, your shepherd, is your prophet, priest, and king, is your loving and never failing friend. All that Jesus has is yours. His life is your life. His glory is your glory. He is for you. And if God is for us, who then can be against us? Does that take away the pain and suffering you've experienced? No. Not, not all of it. But you know in your heart that this Jesus who loves you is worth every pain in yourself. Because who better to trust with your wounds than him who bled and died for you? Who else can turn? Who else can you turn to besides the Lord Jesus? Peter asked the Lord Jesus, Lord, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Are you suffering? Have you been through suffering? There's no one else to turn to apart from Jesus. As I said, all other gods we have served, but there is no God like you. See, obeying this truth makes sense of suffering, doesn't it? We know because Paul is writing this truth from prison. Paul is living out verse 17. He's in a Roman prison. He's living out verse 17 and he's saying, I am being comfortable of living for Jesus. 
It has made sense of my suffering. And if it has made sense of Paul's suffering, if you're a true believer, it makes sense of what you're going through right now. So keep living for Jesus. Those are the three encouragements. And I'll finish in a moment. Let me just quickly give you the, how you should respond to this. So you got those three benefits. How then should we respond? Three quick things and I'll end very quickly. It is this. First of all, if you're a true believer this morning, repent of any areas of your life where you're not honoring him as Lord. Stop cutting corners. Stop trying to be pragmatic with your life. Obey the word. Obey verse 70. Are you in or are you out? Are you all for Jesus or are you for you and the world? Live radical for Christ. No ifs, no buts. It is really a waste of time to be a thing. Also, you get, it's just terrible. Why would you live with tension? Surrender to him. Be all in. Be like the Joshua generation in the promised land. Be all fit in. Live for Jesus. That's the first thing. So let's examine our lives. Truly repent. And let us live for him. Because this is good for us. Ask yourself, where is God calling me to surrender to? Where am I letting the world set the agenda? Is it my marriage? My parenting? My work? Live for Jesus. Secondly, pray to God to give you a new Jesus-focused mentality. So hard, isn't it? It's so hard for us to live with a mentality that asks, how would Jesus be glorified by this? But we need to pray that God gives us that. We need to pray that when we are tempted to argue with our wives, when you are tempted to argue with your wife, that God will immediately, and husbands, of course, God will immediately, why am I always speaking on husbands? I'm sure, but the point is, your spouse, right? We have to be clear. We have to use these these clear words, wife, husband, because our culture is stealing from the word of God, as it were, and uh, doing all sorts of things with it. So the point, though, is this. When you are in an argument with your wife or your husband, pray that Jesus would enable you to immediately ask, how is God going to be glorified by what I'm about to say next? How the arguments will end right there and then, if we only ask that question. When you have spare time on your hands and you decide to catch up on a movie, ask yourself, what movie can I watch that will honor Jesus? If I'm going to watch this movie, how can I watch it in a way that honors him? Pray that every aspect of your life will be transformed by this verse today. And finally, before you leave today, take the opportunity to encourage one another as others here, as they seek to live for Jesus this verse next week. Because that's the context, by the way. That's a whole different sermon. That's the context, isn't it? It isn't just about living for yourself. You know verse 16, which we looked at last week, challenges us to speak the word of God to one another, to sing the word of God to each other. Well, you've heard that we are to live for the honor of Jesus. Before you leave today, ask How can I pray for you this coming week so that you can live for Christ better? Inquire where they are struggling to honor Jesus. Carry on. Share the word of God. Do that before you go. Don't just ask about Guy Lineker and much of the day. 
Speak more. Speak, speak meaningfully the word of God uh, to them. Well, may the Lord himself be glorified.